another episode of the podcast. And this is uh, another part of our series on the Mid-Atlantic uh, 2021 Esotericon, which is coming up June 12th. So we're almost there with the featured speaker, Mitch Horowitz. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, man. Good to be here. So there's a lot of stuff I want to talk to you about. I've had the chance to go over your website, which I will leave a link in the description. Um, uh, you know, your writings. I'm very much looking forward to seeing you, uh, you present and speak on the 12th. I would encourage everybody to check it out. I'll leave a link for Esotericon in the description too, so you can get tickets. Um, but I got to start with this because... It's something I noticed on your Twitter, on your uh, website. If you were to talk about my my top ten favorite movies, uh, Mulholland Drive has got to be up there in, in the top ten. I'm also a very big fan of uh, Lost Highway, mm -hmm. and I'm an idiot, so I couldn't figure it out. But I very no. much enjoyed uh, uh, In My Empire, at least the the feeling of it. If not, I couldn't quite grasp the narrative. And I understand you've worked with David Lynch and he, you know, described you as uh, solid gold, which I thought was so cool. Tell me a bit about that. It was through uh, a book on meditation, correct? Publishing a book on... That's right. This was back in my publishing days. And I published uh, a book of David's called Catching the Big Fish, which is about meditation and creativity, specifically transcendental meditation. And it's funny, we actually published uh, two versions of it. We published a, it's hard to believe how the time passes, we published a 10th anniversary edition that featured David's interviews with Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr, two struggling young musicians who I know are just gonna break through someday. And he had a talk with them about TM and their experiences meeting the Maharishi back in the late 1960s. And it was a, a wonderful experience. I mean, getting to see the joy that someone like David Lynch takes in his work was, was just so instructive for me. You know, there's so much effort and resiliency that is required by any artist at any level to consistently break through in whatever he or she is doing. But there were just moments where, you know, his face would light up uh, at talking about a scene in a particular movie. He won't do forensics on his movies, and there, there, there's no point in asking. You know, he, he doesn't do forensics on his movies. But when people sincerely respond to what's on the screen, and for me, uh, the scene between the character named Adam Kesher and the cowboy in Mulholland Drive is just my whole philosophy of life. And I remember telling him that there was a period of time where I would think about that scene literally every day. And that I felt that it just encapsulated within it an entire approach to life. And I just remember his being very enthused by that because he really digs people falling into his art and finding things, seeing things, talking about their friends with things. He's not gonna provide the roadmap, but but he takes a great joy in, in what he does, and he takes a great joy in seeing people experience it. Yeah, I, I, uh, it's a great scene. I, I, I just watched it again this morning. Uh, oh, wow. I, 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 that I is definitely, timely. 
Well, yeah, because uh, I saw the, the Lynch thing, so I had to, you know, I yeah, I, I have always adored uh, Holland Drive. I think it's such a cool movie. I, you know, one of my favorite feelings is um, in a controlled environment, not out in the world, but in the controlled environment of the cinema or watching a movie, right? I, I love the feeling of, of uh, unease and kind of the uncanny valley effect. And I don't know if anybody does it does it better than than uh, David Lynch in that one, or even in in Lost Highway, another one I love. Like the 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 way just with the shot or the way the performances, you know, he really does a great job. I think of, of creating a feeling of unease and something's just not quite right, but you don't know what it is. I, I just love that feeling. His movies, I think, capture it super super well. Yeah, I think that's that's well put. And probably of his movies, my personal favorite is Mulholland Drive. And I think part of the part of his genius that's on display in Mulholland Drive is that the first 45 minutes or so of that movie, in some regards, is a a suspense yarn. You know, it's a thriller. And thereafter it begins to get more layered, it begins to get more surreal. We begin to realize that these characters are not all what they seem. We begin to realize that maybe we're not even dealing with multiple characters, but we're dealing with one person. And all kinds of different considerations come into play, but what's so extraordinary about him is that if he felt like making a straightforward thriller, a suspense yarn, and a brilliant one, he could do that. He could do Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, you know, he could do M. Night Shyamalan. But then, you know, after 45 minutes of that, he takes it in this direction of wonderful surrealism that has us still talking about the movie, you know, here we are 25 years later. And uh, that's part of his genius that's on display. You know, he, intentionally or not, demonstrates that, you know, he can run and manage a farm and then he can completely upend the farm and do something totally different with it because he, he has that within his ability as an artist. Absolutely, yeah. And I'll just give a shout out another thing of his that I love. Um, I mentioned Inland Empire, which again, I I love the feeling of the movie, even if I couldn't follow it exactly. You know, it leaves you with a feeling of unease, which I, I like, but you know, that movie featured uh, scenes from What's it called? Uh, Rabbits is. I think it was just put on YouTube, but I, I dug. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I dug that. That is a really cool little web series. Um, which is, yeah, I think Naomi Watts was one of the rabbits. And anyways, I, yeah, I love his stuff. If you haven't somehow heard of him, go check him out. He's awesome. But I'm pretty sure he's not exactly an up and coming filmmaker. I think people know who Lynch is. He's uh, one of the greats. You know, if if people really. could name you know five movie directors, they would name you know maybe. Hitchcock, Spielberg, Tarantino, Lynch, somebody else, yeah. Yeah, he has a whole style Miles, album, right? The yeah. Lynchian, so. Yeah, yeah. Now, you are, I got in touch with you because of Esotericon, um, and you are the featured presenter, featured speaker there. One thing I, I came across, uh, and I wanted to talk to you about, is the term, uh, New Age. Mm -hmm. I believe it was on your yeah, it was on the, your website. Uh, somebody, uh, you know, New York Times, I believe, credited you with with bringing uh, 
respectability to the term new age, kind of uh, um, treating it a, or making it a respectful kind of part of the, the discourse. So when you're coming to things like esotericon and you're bringing, I guess first my question is like, how would you define new age? And was it your intention um, through your career to make new age respectable, for lack of a better term? Like what was your, your goal with redefining or defining new age? Well, I define new age as therapeutic spirituality. I would say a radically ecumenical therapeutic spirituality. And a lot of us participate in it in one way or another, although very few people like the term applied to them because it's considered to be fuzzy-headed or unserious. And for many, many years it was and still is used as a kind of epithet. And I think I realized at a certain point in my career that I didn't like to see terms strictly defined by their critics and that new age, like occult or like esoteric, has an entirely defensible history at its back, whether or not one wants to use the term in application to oneself, and that that, that history, that point of view, this kind of post-Woodstock, radically ecumenical, therapeutic spirituality should not just be described as some sort of an insult. And I know that the first time somebody applied the term New Age to me, that's how I felt. And I thought, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Why am I running away from this, this language, which I feel has a certain degree of historical integrity? And I felt infinitely more relaxed once I started using very plain language. I remember a friend of mine told me, you know, if you're interested in comparative spirituality, sooner or later, you're going to get called New Age. Somebody's going to call you New Age. And I also noticed that there were a lot of people within the alternative spiritual culture who lined up to immediately insist that they weren't New Age. You know, their, their, their homes are filled with astrological charts and Buddha statues and incense burners and objects and, and, and relics from every religion and faith around the world and chakra charts, but they're not New Age. They're not, you know, and in the same way that, you know, everyone professes to hate the secret, that it almost seems like a ticket of entry to uh, regarding oneself seriously to say, you know, I'm not this, I'm not that. And I don't think that's necessary. And I, I freely, freely apply the term New Age to myself. I determined not to run from it, but to reclaim it for what it meant. Same with the term occult, for example. You know, lots of people have sinister connotations with the term occult. And of course, you know, that's not at all part of its history. It comes from the Latin occultus, meaning hidden or secret. It was a term that was used by Renaissance thinkers to refer to the religions of the ancient world that seemed to vanish during the Dark Ages and were being rediscovered in the occult revival of the Renaissance. I would never run away from that term. Uh, you know, so, so I, I try to reclaim these terms because I think that they do have a historically defensible and esoterically defensible history and we shouldn't just cede them uh, to the cynics or the critics. The, yeah, the idea of seeding something or seeding something or anything you care about to its critics, um, that's, that, that, that ties well into Freemasonry, uh, I think, for a lot of years. Um, Masons were 
you know, nervous about, and myself included, uh, uh, you know, nervous about emphasizing the kind of the esoteric side of the craft yeah. Um, yeah. because it's, you know, uh, this fear of, you know, conspiracy theorists, we're going to run with it. And next thing you know, it, and I'm becoming more and more kind of uh, uh, not comfortable with, but yeah, accepting with the fact that those, you know, those, those conspiracy cats are going to be out there no matter what we do. Right. So, right. you know, uh, being afraid to embrace the more esoteric or new age or occult aspect of the craft it's not going to make those critics go away. They're just, no, or no. those conspiracy theories go away. They're just going to assume, you know, it's the next level up or, or whatever it is, you know. I, I hear that all the time. You know, the, there's, the, the, you know, this, the, there's this sort of self-perpetuating closed circuitry of thought that occurs among the conspiracy theorists. And I should also define that term and, 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 and indicate why, I, I, I don't have any warmth towards that worldview, which is, you know, conspiracy theorizing is really a, a habit of thought that is in perpetual search for a hidden enemy. And it's as old as humanity itself. It's as old as humanity itself. Everything's the fault of, you know, somebody just around the next corner, somebody just over the next hill. And yes, of course, there are criminal conspiracies, there are price-fixing conspiracies, there are monopolistic conspiracies. It's not that the concept itself doesn't exist. But when it's a habit of thought that's always in the service of discovering a hidden foe, that's when there's a cost involved because that foe is almost always found. And it is almost always found, as is the habit of humanity, among people who are helpless. So whether it's people who are being persecuted in witch trials for centuries and centuries in Europe, or whether it's people who are caught up in the so-called satanic panic in this country and in Europe in the 1980s, 1990s, getting accused of all kinds of fantastical and non-existent uh, uh, acts of, of, of malevolence that take years to sort of clear away as, as, as historical fraud and, and detritus and falsehood. The people who are targeted in these things, they're not the powerful. They're not the powerful. They're usually everyday people who get scapegoated. So that's why I tend to uh, push back against uh, conspiracy theorizing as a, as a habit of thought. And if you try to appease um, a vociferous a critic or a cynic, you, you get nowhere. You know, it, 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 in fact, I think, I think it's much more economical to say yes, this is who I am. No, I don't run from that label. And yes, I have a defense of it. And if they don't like it, they can just keep walking. But we're all going to get called these names anyway. And I, I believe in attempting to reclaim them. Yeah, the, 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 a light switch moment for me uh, on this issue was, you know, the Windsor Masonic Temple, uh, my home temple is, is celebrating 100 years uh, this year. And one idea I had, because we have been such an important part of the, the city of Windsor, was possibly having a, a flag raising ceremony at City Hall where we raised the Masonic flag. Uh, and then, you know, uh, another Mason suggested to me we shouldn't do that because then people will think that the Masons have infiltrated local City Hall. And it's like if, 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 like if even raising a, a flag sets off conspiracy alarms, 
that we have taken over a, a you know small size city in southwest Ontario. Like, what does it matter at that point? You might as well lean into the the more esoteric and occult side as well, because it's you know those those concerns are there anyways, no matter what you do. And maybe even when you lean away from them, you in some ways you know, you, you, you give more fuel to those type of fingers because then why are they leaning so far away from it? I think you I might agree. as well do what you're going to do. People are going to, you know, have their thoughts no matter what. I agree. And, you know, when I was a little kid, my father told me that, um, if you encounter a hostile dog and you run away from the dog, uh, you're going to get bit worse. Uh, now if you don't run away, you may still get bit, but, but you're not going to get bit as badly this, than, 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 than if you run away. Now, I don't know whether my father had any special insights into animal husbandry or whatever, but I thought that was a basic truth of human nature. Now, we are, you know, doing this interview over Zoom. I got you on my phone. We are, or you're getting ready for Esotericon, which is virtual. And, and we are seeing both in Freemasonry and just life in general, uh, a lot of it due to COVID accelerating things, you know, a real increase in uh, an online presence using the virtual world for meetings, for connections, Esotericon being virtual. How do you see new age ideas, philosophies? Do you believe that there's a, they fit, they can fit well into a virtual world? Um, do you think that even you know, once it is all over, I suspect we're still going to see an increase, you know, not to this extent, but we're still going to see Zoom and virtual communications. Uh, I guess, how do you communicate and, and take advantage and use new age ideas and philosophies in a, a virtual setting? Well, you know, I, I, I had to do so of necessity, you know, after COVID, uh, obviously, you know, our world was locked down and live gigs that I had scheduled in different parts of the United States um, were of necessity canceled and moved online. So obviously like everyone else, it was a world to which I had to accustom myself. Um, it has, the experience has probably heightened my determination not to fall into certain traps on social media. Uh, now that social media is where we're all spending the vast majority of our time, we spend more time on social media than we do around people we love. We probably spend more time on social media in many cases than in our employment situations or the two may overlap. The, the language, the dominant language of social media tends to be sarcastic, coarse, based in insults, um, based in rhetorical questions. And I've just decided over the past 12 or 18 months to do my best not to participate in any of that. I can't say that I won't fall off the wagon sometimes because I certainly will. But, you know, sarcasm was never meant to be the ordinary language of everyday exchange rhetorical questions, insults, eye-rolling comments, this kind of thing, they run through probably about 60% or more of online discourse, whether it be Twitter or Instagram or what have you. I left Facebook 
uh, a little ways back because I was just so fed up with, on one hand, the false intimacy that the tech on Facebook instigated. And on the other hand, I felt that this false intimacy a kind of lent itself to a, 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 a vast frivolity. And I found so much frivolity on Facebook. I mean, literally, literally, people commenting on books or articles that they hadn't read, you know, just full-throated opinions. And I thought to myself, this is like being seated next to some loudmouth, you know, somewhere in a bar or something, and just being told, like, this is what I think about this, this is what I think about that, you know, just all this opining in the absence of experience, in the absence of even a question. And I won't participate in that on social media. So I think as our world became so social media based and probably will remain so um, in greater measure even than it was before COVID, uh, I think we all as a civilization need to relearn lessons of basic human commerce and interaction because we will not make it we will not make it as a human civilization if the majority of our social encounters which do occur on social media are punctuated by sarcasm eye-rolling rhetorical questions the thrill of contest the thrill of seeing other people humiliated i mean that's at the heart of a lot of things that are popular vastly popular on youtube i, I won't participate in it Guys, you used the word therapeutic earlier when discussing how you define new age. Yeah. Uh, does does new age philosophy or, or lessons, does that, do you think, or can that provide a kind of therapy to what we're seeing on the social media sphere of the sarcasm and, and eye-rolling type of communications that really are, as you point out, becoming uh, prevalent uh, to a, a point of danger. If there's honesty within the culture itself, it can be a help. You know, I think that what's profoundly important at this moment is that our exchanges, as with this one that we're having right now, be open, be transparent, be direct, be honest, be based in experience, be be punctuated by willingness to say, I don't know, or I haven't read that, or whatever the case may be. Um, those group dynamics are profoundly important, and those dynamics are what I try to bring to my presentations and to my writing. I try, for example, in my writing to be very transparent with the readers about my own failings. You know, I write about a lot of principles of practical spiritual philosophy, and I always, always want people to know that questions of depression or anxiety or what have you are not absent from my life. And I never want to present a face to the reader or to the listener that is different from the face that I present in private. I, I, I try, you know, I try to be as transparent as I possibly can. And I really encourage that. And there are other writers within the alternative spiritual scene who you know, it's not for me to decide, it's up to them, but I encourage transparency. You know, if there's despair, if there's rage, let people know that because otherwise people have the impression that someone somewhere is doing it right and I'm not, and I'm not. And the fact is principles can only be evaluated in light of conduct. And if 
the person doing the speaking or if the person doing the writing or whatever it is is not reasonably transparent about his or her conduct is not by which I mean doesn't share his or her failures then it misleads the other uh, parties to feel like wow that's the man with the plan you know and 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 that's very often uh, uh, um, misleading you know I'm not the man with the plan you know I don't know anyone who's the man with the plan you know I remember I have a friend who's a very highly trained uh, martial artist and he spent a lot of years and time around people who have really really achieved distinction uh, in the martial arts including in Japan and um, I asked him have you ever over the course of all the time that you have spent in in monasteries and dojos and various martial arts schools where there's rigorous training that is both spiritual and physical I don't know that you need to draw a line of demarcation between the two and uh, I said in all these years have you ever once met someone who you would describe as a a realized person and he said no no and we have to start dealing with that. You know, we have to start dealing with that. I don't like terms like enlightened or illumined or awake or realized because I'm not sure, I'm not sure that that exists. And I want to say that very plainly. And I say that with the full knowledge that in the, the, the viewer comments on YouTube, people are going to say, oh, yeah, well, you should meet so-and-so. You know, it means nothing to me. It means nothing to me. One doesn't know that another person is this, that, or the other thing, unless you've spent intimate, close time with that person and you've seen them under conditions of stress and unwellness and so on and so forth. And I don't, I've been on this road for a long time and I'm happy to be wrong and I'm happy to be surprised. I have never met anyone who I would put in the category of realization and that's not for lack of experience or that's not for lack of having overlooked this guy or that guy it's not about examples it's about a years-long journey and asking yourself are those terms serviceable do they set things up in the mind of the seeker that are productive or counterproductive only transparency ultimately is productive on the path so I really want people to be self-critical critical of me critical of whomever they're listening to and to ask real questions from experience and to discuss failures, frankly, as, as much as to discuss realizations or successes. Is it possible to discuss failures in either of historical figures or like, you know, Terms like cancel culture and all that stuff get mm -hmm. thrown about. Thrown about. Um, these are kind of amorphous terms. I'm not a big fan of them because they they do a lot of conceptual lifting for whoever is saying them at the time. Yep. There's usually very little consistency in terms of how they're applied. But the the general um, the, the general idea of uh, you know is it possible with the with such an amount of sarcasm and all those things online that we talked about, is it possible to have an honest discussion uh, about someone's failures and shortcomings and, and you know, self-criticism 
in a, a climate that is so quick to cancel or whatever it may be, or not even cancel, but just, you know, somebody makes a mistake and there's, you know, 5,000 right, 5, right. things on Twitter, this guy's a piece of shit or whatever it is. Like, how, how do we discuss failures and shortcomings without falling into this trap of sarcasm and kind of frivolity? Yeah, that's a great question. On Twitter, you know, to adopt your example, it's all but impossible. It's all but impossible. There is this ghoulish glee, as you were just alluding, that, that people take in seeing somebody uh, humiliated or knocked down. And I often see this, this, this glee, this kind of malevolent, snarling, sneering glee um, coming from people who have no connection whatsoever to the individual who's being objectified, to the issue or the controversy that's being discussed. And it really lays bare a fact of human nature. Human nature has not changed with digital culture, but digital culture, because of its perceived anonymity or distance or remove, and its 24-7 availability, has encouraged certain aspects of human nature, has disinhibited certain aspects of human nature, uh, chief among them the proclivity to just throw rocks at other people. And very often, people who think they're taking some sort of a principled position on Twitter, which everyone does, you know, let's face it, I mean, everyone from across the political culture, whoever they be, whatever they think they stand for, they think, well, I'm speaking truth to power. Someone finally said it. There you go. You know, everyone feels that way about him or herself. You know, it's the most ordinary outlook in the world. And it fuels this kind of like riot uh, of pile-on comments on Twitter that make it next to impossible to have a measured conversation about anything. And if you try to have a measured conversation, you know, that only elicits, you know, that sort of stuff. So things are in a bad state. You know, things are in a bad state. I do have exchanges on social media, but it might occur in, you know, platforms that are more self-selecting. Like, for example, I'll post things on Patreon, and I have a book in progress that I'm posting on Patreon. Those exchanges are great because people really want to be there, and it's a self-selected group of people. Um, but unless it's a self-selected group the you know general ecosystem of social media is not um servicing of of any kind of measured exchange in my experience uh one thing that you mentioned offline but uh something i, I very much like about you uh and don't take this the, the wrong way if you <laughs> want to join by all means uh you know, I hope you do, but you, you mentioned, no, you're not a Mason, you're a friend of Masonry. Mm -hmm. And that's something I, and I talked about this with the esoteric fund organizers. I think that's really important. And that I think is maybe the biggest mistake that Freemasonry made since 1959 is there was always this idea of, um, you know, the goal of reaching out to people is to create a new member and any and you can take advantage of a member's skills and abilities and whatever you know bringing to the table to improve the lodge experience but you should never look outside of the lodge for, for expertise you should only look outside the lodge to gain membership and that to me was a huge loss opportunity because there are a lot of people who 
you know, such as yourself, people I've had on this podcast to have a great deal of, of wealth and uh, wealth of knowledge, wealth of experience that they can bring to Freemasonry that can improve my lodge experience. But they, that doesn't mean that, you know, we have to be throwing membership applications at them, right? Because that, that turns people off automatic, I think, is, is to have such a membership based focus. You know, it's, it's okay to have connections and friends of the craft, you know, because you, you, and that will, will, that improves the lodge experience, it gets more people coming out, which then will increase membership indirectly. Uh, But I just, I think for, for far too long, there was this idea of, you know, member or bust or membership or bust, as opposed to um, what can this person, this group offered to the craft and how can yeah. we we use their, you know, use in the best sense of the word, use their um, skills and abilities to improve the craft and improve the lodge experience, which, you know, you're, you're doing yourself on both through this podcast, through your work and on June 12th, presenting at Esotericon. Yeah, I, I, I've spoken at a great many Freemasonic lodges, um, Telluride, Colorado, New York City, Pasadena, Boston, Greensboro, North Carolina, n- number of others, and I've invariably had great experiences. I find that the attendees are just, they're not only informed and seeking and curious, but they're, they're well-read folk. You know, they really care about the topic that's being discussed. They, they're really engaged. And speaking at Masonic Lodges has been some of my best uh, presentations and experiences, especially with the with the um, attendees. Um, as you said, I, I'm not a Mason. I'm a friend of Masonry. I, I have no constitutional opposition to becoming a Mason. You know, it, it's not as if I'm trying to remain independent or that I feel that it would compromise me as a historian or something. I don't feel that way at all. I've always described myself as a believing historian. And in fact, sometimes you can write with more critical poignancy about something that you are very close to because you, you sort of understand the values that emanate from it and, and, and you, you have a, a level of road-tested experience that, that could bring a lot to your assessment of a situation. So I may become a Mason in the future. I just don't, I don't want to be just a paper member. You know, I want to be sure that I'm able to participate fully, you know, rather than some guy who just you know, maybe sends a check once a year and, you know, shows up only when he's absolutely required. You know, there's enough paper members out there of any number of organizations. So I'd want it to be meaningful. And in the midst of everything in life, I just haven't had that uh, entree yet. But but I'm not opposed to it in, in any respect. You know, I, I love Freemasonry. I believe Freemasonry has contributed extraordinary things to this country, which is part of what I'm going to be talking about at Esotericon. And uh, I consider myself a friend, but... Um, I, you know, would never rule out to becoming a member uh, down the road. Well, yeah, and then, you know, it'd be, it'd be, it's always great to have a, a member, a meaningful member, right? Uh, not just a paper member, as, as you said. Uh, you know, meaningful membership is always important. But I, and I've had other guys on the podcast, uh, Professor William Moore, who wrote an amazing book about Masonic temples in, uh, in New York from like 1870 to 1930, basically a study of those buildings. Hmm. He is not a Mason himself, but he made connections with the Grand Lodge of New York to 
for that. Um, I've had various architects, uh, uh, NeuroAU from Brazil. Uh, the, the point is, I guess we're getting better at it, but you know, you're just another example as Professor Moore, you know, to any Masonic lodges out there looking to augment or improve the Masonic experience. Um, yes, it's great to look inward and look to your membership, but also there is a lot of, of knowledge and just really, really cool stuff out there that you can bring into lodge. Like you oh, said, you've done so, so many talks and uh, at different lodges, you know, uh, now that we're more and more comfortable on Zoom, you know, you don't even have to, you know, you can do a talk at a lodge in California at seven o'clock and then New York at eight o'clock, you know, there, there's, there's plenty of, of ways to uh, create a more exciting and fun lodge experience by looking to friends of Freemasonry. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree more. And look, you know, we live in a kind of open source age. I mean, we're not a nation of joiners anymore. And that's something that, that has existed before So the absolute explosion of social media. But, but the advent of social media has, has exacerbated that situation. So every organization in America, whatever it is, whoever it is, um, there's probably exceptions, but many organizations, especially civic-based organizations, are experiencing... A, a, a crisis of, of membership. I am heartened though, I've discovered and the invitations that I've gotten to speak at Masonic Lodges speak to this fact. Um, I've discovered a generation, and you're part of it, of, of Freemasons who have deep esoteric interests and they are helping to really revive that bonfire within Masonry as a whole. And I think that um, every lodge I've ever been to, I've, I've met really impressive, wonderful people, Freemasons, who who have authentic esoteric interests. And they're always like, well, listen, um, not everybody who belongs to this lodge feels the way I do. You know, for some people, it's more of a social experience or what have you. Some people maybe are into the civics. But uh, I've, I've seen that there, there's a substantial and active and intellectually vibrant fraction of Masons who are esoterically interested. And I think that's really hopeful. And that's, that's, that's bringing in people. Now, I want to touch on the, this goes back to, to your work with David Lynch, um, meditation. Mm -hmm. uh, I've had a brother, Randy Sanders on, he is with, uh, he's from uh, Missouri. Uh, he does a lot of work with meditation and, and awareness, uh, being, you know, in the moment type of thing. My interest is is applying this in the Masonic sphere, but really any organization, any whether any workplace, board room, whatever it is, um, you know, I've always suspected that, and Randy talked about this. You know, there's there's a, a way that meditative practices can be incorporated into, for example, a, a lodge meeting either at the start of the meeting or at the end of the meeting, you know, taking a few moments to, you know, practice, to practice breathing and, and engage in self-awareness and awareness of the moment. I guess, you know, uh, 
as somebody who is, you know, published on this issue, who is involved with the new age, you know, how could, how could lodges bring in, or really any meeting, any group of people bring meditative practices into their meetings, making it a, a part of their Masonic experience? Well, you know, dig this. I mean, the, the form of meditation that I participate in is transcendental meditation, and that choice is up to the individual. But I would say that I believe it's a crisis in the human situation if an individual cannot sit still for 10 minutes. You know, cannot sit still without talking, without checking his or her phone, without making some superfluous comment or something or complaining about the weather or whatever it is. Uh, I think that, that everyone should be able to sit still for about 10 minutes. And if a meeting begins with everybody just sitting still, eyes closed, breathing for 10 minutes, it's a wonderful exercise in self-inquiry because the truth is we very rarely, as a culture, try things like that. And when a person tries things like that, he or she might discover that it's actually not so easy. It actually cuts against everything that we've been conditioned to do. Uh, we're conditioned to talk, fidget, fuss, look at our phone constantly, and so forth. Sitting still for just 10 minutes can in itself be self-revealing if a person really sticks to it. And if a person were to sit still for 10 minutes and be honest, that person might discover that for him or her, it's not possible. If you ask somebody, can you sit still for 10 minutes? They would say, well, of course I can. Well, okay, let's do it right now. You know, see what happens. You know, there's a lot of shuffling, there's a lot of fidgeting, there's peeking at the wristwatch or whatever. You know, most people cannot, oddly enough. Obviously, those who are regular meditators can. And, and why not discover that about oneself? And then see what happens. Does it become easier? Is it satisfying? You know, does it open you to other things? You don't know where it's going to go. I think it'd be terrific if uh, a given lodge meeting opened with uh, 10 minutes of quiet sitting. Is it possible to, or I, not possible, but possible, is, is it um, preferable to have uh, with those 10 minutes have some type of uh, guidance, like be something recorded where, which talks about, you know, being aware of your breathing and something to, to help uh, brethren get into the, the mindset of stillness, uh, you know, like a guided meditation or at the start is it preferable to just, like you just, okay, we're going to sit, uh, still for 10 minutes and see how you do or do you do you want like a coach to to help guide people should they start to fidget one two three minutes in to kind of uh, uh refocus them on that stillness i would personally speaking i would try a just sitting approach and then see how that goes and see what that gives birth to i mean i was shocked the first time i tried to sit still for 10 minutes and found out that you know sitting cross-legged on the floor on a cushion for 10 minutes was just a recipe for fidgetiness and this, that, the other thing, you know, it can be so self-revealing when there's no other stimuli. So just personally speaking, I would try a just sitting exercise for 10 minutes. And then, you know, after a time, maybe see where that leads. Maybe people will want to change or 
deepen or augment their practice, maybe with a guided meditation or something else. Maybe, you know, uh, a bunch of guys will say, hey, you know, why don't we do a meditation retreat on a Saturday afternoon, you know, which could be really cool and could be really revealing of certain things. So, you know, start with that and see where it goes. You know, that, that would be my personal approach. Let's, uh, in terms of, of your, your approach to um, this coming Saturday, uh, Esotericon, once again, links in the link to tickets in the description. Um, you know, what do you, uh, don't, you know, give away everything. People got to buy tickets to see the, uh, to see it. But I guess, what is your, your approach, your plan for your talk on Saturday? Um, and also, just generally speaking, what do you hope att uh, attendees can, can get from your talk? And we'll leave with. Well, my, my talk is entitled uh, Masonic Nation, and it's about Freemasonry's influence on the United States uh, going back to the colonial era up through the present day. And as I think you know, we've been alluding, people have polarized attitudes about Freemasonry. Mainstream historians, until very recently, uh, would just simply overlook or neglect the really profound impact that Masonry had in America's uh, colonial past in terms of the framing of the Constitution, the signing of the Declaration among Washington's generals. And, and, and I think it's very important to assess and understand that impact, which is quite real. Then on the opposite polarity, you know, as we were referencing earlier, you kind of have the conspiracy folk who think that, well, you know, everything is a Freemasonic conspiracy. And, you know, the Iron Pyramid on the back of the dollar bill is, you know, all you need to know to understand blank, 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 you know. And, and, and next thing you know, you can't raise, you know, uh, uh, the Masonic flag in a ceremony above City Hall unless somebody say, hey, you know, those guys, you know, they've got it in their grips. So I want to steer a course between those polarities of either neglect or or kind of extremist theorizing and 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 get down to the basics of of masonic influence on america which which really was very considerable i i don't think people and and i should say perhaps i should frame that as north america i don't think people fully understand how truly rural a place uh north america was for many, many generations. I mean, you know, if you go back to late 1600s, 1700s, I mean, this was rural farmland. You know, you maybe had a grange, you maybe had a church, place of business, public house here and there, but, you know, beyond farm and family, there wasn't very much else. And um, for somebody to become affiliated with masonry in that way and in that atmosphere signaled a really deep, deep personal commitment. So when we speak of people like Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, Paul Revere, John Hancock being Freemasons, that signaled a very, very deep and significant uh, commitment. And, and one has to take very seriously the impact and the influence of Freemasonic ideas, including uh, ecumenism, including freedom of worship, including separation of church-state authority, and, and, and how those ideas impacted these individuals who were not necessarily reading, you know, John Locke, but who were attending their Freemasonic Lodge meetings. And then outside of or after the, the 12th, you mentioned, you know, you have a, you're working on a, a book. 
which is said to be released. Throw all that stuff out there. What, what is on the horizon um, for Maturowitz? And, uh, you know, I will leave, like I said, your website in the description so people can follow up. But I do know you have several projects uh, on the go. Uh, some of them are also through your Patreon uh, page, mm -hmm. if I recall. So, yes, what, what do you got coming up after uh, after Esotericon? Well, I'm very interested in new thought, this, the philosophy that holds that thoughts are causative. I'm deeply, deeply, deeply interested in that. And I'm working on a book, which I haven't announced yet, but I'm previewing on Patreon in, in posted chapters, that really, really seeks to get down to the very core basics of what we can understand after, say, 150 years about the prospect of thought causation. Sometimes this will go under popular names like law of attraction, the secret, or the power of positive thinking. None Sorry, of are... uh, when you say thought causation, are you referring to like, um, uh, manifestation like cognitive behavioral therapy or, or no, out? No. Okay. Manifestation. No, metaphysically, you know, I don't use the term manifestation because I, I really feel it's insufficient to describe what's going on. I use the term selection and I have very, uh, very chosen reasons for that, which I also go into in this book in progress. Um, all the terms, law of attraction, manifestation, are not my favorite terms. Um, I'm a little more sympathetic to power positive thinking because um, I guess I'm a little old fashioned. But uh, I'm trying to come up with a new vocabulary, a new line of reasoning, and a theory of, of why these things work, or what happens when they don't work, because we experience many laws and forces, and there's a lot that intervenes in our lives. I don't think in terms of one overarching mental super law or law of attraction, another reason why I don't use that term. Something can be a law, like gravity is a law, but its effects are felt radically differently based on circumstance. So I'm trying to write a book that really gets down to the basics of what we can understand about the truth or blind spots of, of what is referred to as law of attraction manifestation, terms that I hope to provide alternatives for because I don't think those terms have sufficient clarity and I don't think they communicate what's really going on. So I've been posting that on Patreon. There's a number of other things I'm working on, but that project, as you can probably hear, is really close to my heart and that's something I'm working really hard on and I've been getting wonderful response. Nice, nice. So you said that you are previewing some of those chapters on Patreon. Is there a um, uh, release date set for the book? Yes, yes. as a matter of fact, there is. Uh, it's uh, it's going to come out in July of 2022. So I haven't announced it yet, um, but I'm really excited about it. <laughs> well, there you go. I just got the exclusive, July 2022. This is the exclusive, yeah, that is right. Uh, um that that's really that's really interesting you know i i come from a uh, the the criminal justice side of the world i was a, a probation officer for many years and then i worked in a jail as a rehab officer which was a very similar uh position to probation officer we kind of mm -hmm. worked on the same things you know we were we we a lot of our training and kind of a lot of the core ideas were based on on uh, CBT kind of behavioral uh, theory, right? The idea of, of trying to get the the client, the, the offender, 
pick your term, to recognize kind of the to recognize the thoughts and feelings that led to the behaviors that then led to them being in your office. Um, but it's interesting even taking it because this idea of man, you know, improper terms as they are manifestation or, or power of positive thinking, it, it seems like it's just taking this idea and taking it the next step further, which is um, the, 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 the thoughts manifesting themselves as opposed to the thoughts that lead to behaviors that, that you know, have good or bad consequences type thing. I think it'd be interesting. I think it could actually be a very applicable idea to to the criminal justice system, to probation or jails, just recognizing that, you know, because you see it all the time, somebody in, in a jail, right? If somebody comes into a range and you have 32 guys in a range and if one of them is, you know, a dick, then 31 other people become dicks very quickly. Just how that yeah. any just those the way that those thoughts can they don't even have to be overtly a dick you can just sometimes tell they just create a, a negative vibe that then it becomes everybody's problem type of thing yeah that's very interesting i i i'm i'm hugely interested at this point in my life in the extra physical the non-local capacities of thought and i won't go into any great detail this will be a discussion for another time but if one wants to speak in terms of evidence-based uh, data, we have so much at this point in the 21st century that makes it impossible to understand thought as a strictly localized phenomenon, just an epiphenomenon of the brain. Although that point of view is going to hold sway for probably another generation or so, it's, it's on its way out the door because the evidence is just overwhelming. So the question is, you know, what do we do with this? Is this applicable as a practical spirituality? Or is it not? You know, is it not? I mean, are we faced with this kind of, almost as if there was a piece of alien technology, let's say, that we discovered and happened upon. And, you know, we knew that it was something, but we couldn't quite figure out how to use it, what it is, you know, and, and we're, we're, we're kind of in that place with thought causation. So I'm trying to, as best I can, I'm trying to sort out some of those issues in a very practical way. You know, I remember, um, one of my favorite TV shows for a while was the West Wing. And it's interesting. I remember a, an episode where they were trying to get funding for a study. Uh, and I have no idea if this was a, a legit study or something that just made up for the show, but it sounds like it could be real. I think they did their, you know, the show would do the research, but anyways, they were trying to get federal funding for a study on the power of prayer. And they said that they found that they, they had done a smaller study and a patient in the hospital would recover faster if that patient had people praying for them, even if the patient didn't know that they had people out there praying for them. I've heard about that study. Yeah, yeah. I don't so, know it. You know, it's it's not something I could comment on critically, but I, I, it did exist. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating idea, and, and I think that maybe goes to perhaps it's more of a religious context. But the idea of, of you know, just because something's happening and localized in our head doesn't mean that there can't be ramifications out there in the world. Yes. I agree entirely. And, you know, we're entering a whole new territory 
today in our culture. I mean, there's the mainstreaming of UFOs, there's the mainstreaming of psychedelics, and I think this is going to open a variety of other doors. And there's also a crisis within psychology and the social sciences, and that is the crisis of replication. Uh, a lot of people within the sciences are attached to the idea of replication as the absolute gold standard of validity. And uh, our generation is, is finding, this is not certainly a first, but it, 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 it's, it's running rife throughout the field, our generation is finding that a lot of studies in psychology and social science, including things that have been popularized over TED Talks and so on, uh, cannot be replicated. Whereas the rap on ESP research, for example, is always that, well, it's never been replicated, and that's not true. It has been replicated, although I understand why people need to kind of hang on to that point of view, because old paradigms do not go gently. But the point is, should replication even be the gold standard? You know, if something occurs, but it can't be repeated, does that mean that it did not occur? And that's a very, very important question. So we have to be very careful as to whether we see replication as the coin of the realm. Maybe it needs to be, maybe it needs to be, but it certainly doesn't tell us that something didn't occur because it's not repeatable or repeatable in the same way. So we're really facing a generational shift, I think, in terms of how we regard psychology and the social sciences because many generations of effort uh, have contributed to these things being seen as sciences, as methodology-based. And yet, if there's a crisis in replication, it, it, it throws open a lot of questions, including the question of whether replication itself must always be the gold standard. So we're facing a lot of interesting issues in psychology, as far as I'm concerned. We are facing a lot of interesting issues yeah. in, in everywhere. Too, but too that, damn many. <laughs> that, that is true. It's certainly Freemasonry is facing a lot of interesting issues. Uh, and that's why you know, I have this podcast, and that's why I'm so happy to have guests such as yourself, you know, who, who have knowledge that can, can shed some light and, and maybe give Masons a different perspective uh, on the craft, on the relationship to the craft, you know, and and try to explore some of these interesting issues. Uh, yeah, well, I must say, and I say this as a tribute to the state of Freemasonry today, Masonry has produced an extraordinary range of uh, historians and thinkers and intellectuals, uh, a number of whom are going to be present for Esotericon. I'm always moved to see the expertise and the quality of history texts that come from within uh, Masonry. There is a, a dogged dedication to accuracy, research, comprehensive archival material, and you can't say that of a lot of organizations you know, across the current scene. And that masonry has produced such a really high quality of, of historians and thinkers is something that people ought to take a look at. You know, that's that came out of a certain setting and you do not un universally find that across our modern scene today. Absolutely, I, I agree completely. I've had, you know, uh, several of those, I've been lucky to have several of those, those thinkers uh, on the podcast and, getting some more, which I'm excited about, which is a good segue into uh, the whole standard spiel, you know, like, comment, subscribe, give me money on Patreon, all that good stuff, whatever you want to do. Um, follow me on Twitter, all, all that fun stuff that you're supposed to say. Um, and also, you know, I, I mentioned before, uh, in the description to this video, I, I have the website for 
Mitch Horowitz, check it out. You know, you're also on on YouTube, Patreon, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've I've had the chance to, like I said, check out your website, check out your YouTube page. It's all very cool, and I'd encourage everybody to to take a look at it. You know, subscribe to his stuff, whether you're a Mason or not a Mason, whatever it is. You know, the the I just I've really enjoyed the chance I've had to check out your work, and I think that it provides a lot of it, it will provide a lot of benefit. You know, you use the word therapy, and and there is a therapeutic aspect to this stuff. It seems that we nowadays are, you know, searching for for a spiritual meaning uh, in our life, and and yeah. are having a hard time finding it. And you know, whether it be your work with meditation or new age philosophies or inquiries i think that that does offer a therapeutic um something of therapy to to this spiritual crisis we seem to be facing i appreciate you pointing that out and i recognize that people are under tremendous stress and they are in deep need as i am in deep need of philosophies and outlooks that not only help them reframe that stress, but possibly accelerants that, that help a person get to a place where they're not so wound up and twisted up in knots. And, and when I use the term spirituality, I really mean very simply extra physicality. I, I, I think it's, it's evident that we do possess lives that go beyond muscle and bone and ordinary motor skills and brain cognition. There is an extra physical component to life. And that component uh, can be a source of solutions. I, I believe in thinking very practically about these things. So that's, that's what I define as, as in part, in part, as my spiritual search. So let's then make this the, the challenge to everybody watching this. Um, first, subscribe and like, then get your tickets for Esoterracon, <laughs> then turn off your, you know, if you're watching this on the computer, turn that off. If you're on the phone, turn that off. And see, you know, you've got a timer on your phone. Set it for 10 minutes and see if you can be still for those 10 minutes. Let's make that the, uh, the challenge at the end of this video. Subscribe first, then do that. Uh, see how well you do. Leave a comment if you uh, can make it the full 10 minutes or however long you make it. And like everything, it's a skill, right? So even if you can only sit still for three minutes, try it again tomorrow. Maybe you'll be up before. And eventually you'll get there. And thank you so much. Uh, I very much appreciate your time being here today. Thank and you. I can't wait to to uh, attend your lecture on the 12th. I, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I, I dig what you're doing. And I'm glad we got to have this exchange.